American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. Christian Appy of University of Massachusetts Amherst conducted hundreds of oral histories with Vietnamese and Americans involved in the American War in Vietnam. In this lecture, he shares his insights into why each side was fighting. This talk took place May 14, 2008, at the Paley Center for Media. In his talk, he refers to images that are available in the podcast section of our website. In an effort to try to broaden the sense that this was an American tragedy, an American ordeal, that's really what inspired me to go to Vietnam and to begin to interview Vietnamese and people on all sides of the war and do this oral history that you now have a copy of. When I began, I thought I, I knew quite a bit about the war, but actually just hearing those Vietnamese accounts, even some of the first of them, uh, really shifted my perspective. And I'll start with a story that will give you an example of it. Early on, I was told that there was a doctor I should meet who had directed a hospital, a jungle hospital in the Central Highlands for 10 years, a hospital that could accommodate 1,000 patients. So I said, sure, I'd love to interview him, Dr. Dai, whose account is featured in the, in the book. And first I wanted to kind of get clear on what this hospital looked like. And his response was, well, everybody knows what a jungle hospital is like. Well, Vietnamese do, but not me. When I think hospital, I think mostly urban, multi-story, uh, air-conditioned, uh, sterile, fancy equipment. So I really do concretely want to know what this hospital looked like. So he described it to me. It consisted of about 250 half-buried bunkers. Each bunker could accommodate about five people. Each bunker was separated from the next by about 30 meters over many square uh, miles of jungle terrain. Uh, why do you do it this way? Well, if there's an American airstrike, it may knock out a handful of these bunkers, but it won't destroy the entire hospital. It's been distributed. So for me, to make the rounds of this hospital might take all day to go from one side to the next. You know, he went on to describe the conditions in that hospital. They did, of course, bring equipment down the Ho Chi Minh Trail from the north, but lots of it got uh, damaged or destroyed or lost en route. So they had to jerry-rig equipment with what they got, sometimes um, making surgical uh, uh, implements out of the metal they scavenged from downed American aircraft, or even IV lines from some of the electrical wires in those aircraft. Uh, he would sometimes operate in the middle of the night uh, under a single light bulb powered by one of his staff members riding a bicycle connected to a small generator. Um, eight times during the war in this 10 years, he had to relocate his hospital uh, because of chemical defoliation, the spraying of Agent Orange. As soon as they started to do that, um, which would wipe out their cover in triple, triple canopy jungle, he knew that he would have to order a relocation. So they would pick up the patients and march 10 kilometers away, 
redig the bunkers and settle in and create uh, a new hospital. So um, that raised all kinds, I mean, totally, that, those images really were so fundamentally different from the kind of American images of the war. Clearly we have images of American soldiers in very difficult circumstances, uh, patrolling through hostile, difficult jungle terrain, trying to find and kill an invisible enemy or searching uh, with great frustration uh, and um, difficulty through villages looking for the enemy. But um, those Vietnamese voices uh, remain uh, silent and we don't live with them for year after year in the jungle under American bombs. American combat soldiers uh, had a, a very difficult experience, many of them, but the tours were one year. This, this man had stayed in the Central Highlands uh, under those conditions for 10 years. So the obvious question is what, uh, what explains that persistence and that will uh, to fight on uh, for so long? So part of my, my um, thinking was that um, considering different perspectives of the war can challenge the most basic questions we have about the war. And I'm going to get into some of those, but first let me back up a little bit and make a little uh, kind of a pitch for doing history from multiple perspectives. Uh, I have these PowerPoints. I don't worry too much about them. They're really my notes, and I'll be happy to send them out to you, make them available uh, over uh, what I tell my students. They're online. You don't have to write them down or, 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 or study them. There's too much text there anyway, good PowerPoints. But why is it that it's uh, important and useful to do history from multiple perspectives? The first thing I'd say is it's because that's what history is, at, le at least good, good history. History is um, uh, not a science. Uh, it is uh, an, uh, an interpretive discipline. Interpretations that are always contested and contested uh, over time. And uh, so therefore history is multiple perspectives. Uh, the second thing I'd say is that those of us who somehow, and our students, who think that history is a kind of science that has a single narrative, by introducing multiple perspectives, we immediately challenge that assumption that there is some textbook out there that has the capital T truth about the past in one line for them to memorize. So it can challenge dominant ideologies, narratives, myths. Uh, in addition, I would say that um, multiple perspectives, doing it that way, automatically reinforces an assumption that I think inspired many of us to go into this field. It certainly inspired me. And that is the idea that every, everybody has a history and those histories count. Uh, yeah interviewing people of all kinds and all walks of life, this is really history from the bottom up. Uh, so in that sense, it, it, it I think enhances a kind of small d democratic uh, culture when you do history this way. Uh, finally, I would say that um, it's just, it, it enhances curiosity um, to um, offer these stories. Um, and uh, is, is so, so different from just a, a single sort of textbook fact, which tends to dull students uh, to what should be really the most exciting kind of study. That said, I do want to make an important uh, qualification. There's, sometimes people think, well, when you talk about doing history from multiple perspectives, that means all viewpoints are equally uh, valid. It doesn't really matter 
Um, so long as everybody's got an opinion, that's what we're searching for. Well, I do think it's important that everybody form an opinion, but that opinion should be persuasive. And some opinions are more persuasive than others. Not all, uh, not all historical interpretations are equally persuasive. I mean, what would you say to someone who said, well, you know, the Holocaust really didn't happen. That's a myth. Uh, no, I think you argue against that, if the historical interpretation. Where's your evidence? Uh, there are important moral questions at stake always. History is political. These interpretations are political. And you're going to argue about them, but people should have uh, evidence. And some are more persuasive uh, than others. So that's, what, that's our goal, is to get students uh, uh, to, um, to be able to defend their opinions with evidence. There are facts out there that, that should be gathered. All right, now I'm going to turn to this uh, idea of how even basic questions can be, can be challenged or reframed when you think about other people's point of view. Even such things as, what do you call this war? Now, the, uh, in the United States, we, of course, have referred to this war that we're studying today, the Vietnam War. And, and often we even just drop off the words. Oh, we're gonna stay, we're gonna, I'm going to uh, the Paley Center to study Vietnam. Well, no, we're not really studying uh, Vietnam. It's huge, you know, thousands of years of history and culture and literature. We're studying a particular war. But in America, Vietnam has become a shorthand for this long and uh, divisive war. In, um, in Vietnam, uh, they call it the American War. How else to distinguish it between all these uh, other wars in their past? So this was, while there were, of course, Vietnamese fighting on the side of the Americans, uh, the victorious side, which gets to name the past, <laughs> uh, called it the American War, even uh, as it was going on. And they, it was linked to a long uh, historical quest for national independence and unification, which I'll say a bit more about. Um, so you could say, well, they call it this, we call it this. But sometimes you can actually come up with some uh, interpretations or language that does incorporate uh, or clarify things. And I used it. I, I typically, I call my course on this subject the American War in Vietnam. Uh, it sort of uh, makes clear, <laughs> makes it a little more, more, more clear what, what the subject is, I think. When did the war uh, start? Uh, basic questions of chronology, always important to us as historians, uh, um, are really confused and complicated by this basic question when you consider Vietnamese viewpoints. For, uh, it was confusing for Americans even just focusing on American intervention after all, because there was no formal declaration of war. There was no uh, dis initial battle or moment when we could say the war really began. Uh, so to most Americans, it felt as if they were, uh, the United States was sort of entering a war in progress, which is actually not uh, historically useful because it masks and obscures the presence of America in Vietnam early on and the American role and responsibility in really uh, establishing the, um, the, the, uh, the basis, the fundamental structure that would lead to war. More about that in a minute. But um, for the 
for the uh, Vietnamese who fought on the other side, I remember going over there and I would, I would you know, ask them, well, I want you to tell me about the American War. See, I had learned to call it the American War. Um, and I was thinking, well, they're going to start talking about the 1960s. Because from an American point of reference, that's sort of when things really heat up. And they would, you know, especially if they're if they a bit older and had personal memories of it, they would invariably start talking about the war against the French. Sort of to my frustration at first, but then I realized, well, that's ridiculous. This, for them, there is no clear separation between those two wars. Because the war against the French was supported by the United States. By the end of it, the United States was paying almost 80% of the cost of that war. Now, when you're paying somebody else to fight a war, uh, in effect, you're paying a mercenary army. I mean, that's a little bit reductive, but in, in that sense, it could be said that the French were doing our bidding in trying to cling to their colony, which they had taken possession of back uh, formally in the late 19th century, and then had to retake right after World War II. There was a brief moment of Vietnamese independence under Ho Chi Minh in 1945. Now, that's a complicated story that I won't go into now. We can talk about it later. But there are some accounts and patriots that deal with that early history, moving our chronology back from the 1960s to where it belongs at least in the 1940s. Uh, how do you draw a map? Maps are wonderful, right? Maps, because maps are so damn political. How you draw a map is political. Um, the Vietnamese tend to think of their country as an undivided whole. Uh, and when they draw a map, they draw the whole country. The French came in and they divided the country into three. So the French map has Vietnam cut into three sections. Sort of that old uh, imperial idea of divide and conquer. The United States, it could be said, the, the maps that we drew cut the country right in half. From 1954 to 1975, the American mission in Vietnam was to build a permanent non-communist country called South Vietnam and in effect to cut the country in half. Um, not contrary to what uh, President Johnson said, to uh, allow the Vietnamese to determine for themselves uh, their, their, their future, their political future, and to be independent from the, at least the majority Vietnamese experience uh, or, or perception. Um, America's intervention was preventing Vietnamese independence and national unification and self-determination. Self-determination, you want us to have self-determination, we were supposed to have it in 1956 because the Geneva Accords promised nationwide elections to uh, reunify the country under a single government. And your man in Saigon, No Dinh Zien, canceled those elections with your authority and approval. So. Um, so much for democracy and self-determination. You want uh, a government in Vietnam that is your uh, puppet, to use the, the, the language of the, of the Vietnamese uh, communist side in this. So maps are very political. The uh, Vietnamese have a nice organic simile to what their country looks like. That is, uh, they often liken it to a traditional carrying pole. Um, let's, see, let's see an image of it. That's actually less, that one with the big baskets is less common than the one you can sort of see behind, which tends to be more like this. But you get the idea. You have the single pole across the shoulder and the baskets that carry all sorts of things at either end. 
Well, it's wonderful because Vietnam in some ways resembles this because you've got the rice basket of the Red River Delta in the north and the rice basket of the Mekong River Delta in the south and this long, thin country connected by uh, a narrow uh, belt of land as narrow as 40 miles, actually, at its thinnest. Um, that, that the, 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 the map of Vietnam itself gives you an indication of how, uh, what a struggle it must have been and was to maintain national unity uh, because it, it is, has this sort of long, uh, thin strip of land emblematic of a kind of long, tenuous struggle for national uh, unification. Oh, here's a great picture of an American map. And I see North Vietnam doesn't even get included. This is, a, this is from 1965, the kind of thing you'd see in Life magazine or Time magazine. And it's uh, obviously dominated by this extraordinary uh, set of arrows coming down from the north which you know, uh, is to, meant to indicate the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which in this rendering is, is about as wide as the state of Rhode Island. I mean, I can, can imagine uh, you know, an interstate uh, 91 would have to have 3,000 lanes to be this big. Uh, I mean, Ho Chi Minh Trail was a gigantic network of trails ranging from footpaths to actual you know, truck accommodating roads. But uh, clearly, the politics of this map are to indicate that all aggression is coming from a northern enemy uh, into the south. And it therefore distracts our attention from the possibility that there are, as there were, an uh, enormous number of southern Vietnamese who uh, were um, uh, fighting against the American-backed government and were fighting that government well before they got any support from their northern comrades. These were the so-called Viet Cong, uh, an American term, by the way. They call themselves the, um, the National Liberation Front. We call them the Viet Cong because um, uh, it was actually some um, political information, uh, public information officer came up with this because he realized that the, the name of the insurgency had been, or the insurgents had been the Viet Minh. Those are the people that had fought against the French. And that's like calling somebody a great patriot because they, they fought and defeated the, uh, the French colonial rulers. So we'll have to come up with another name for the enemy. So let's, how about Viet Cong, which means something like uh, Vietnamese commie. You know, that's sort of a pejorative thing. It implies that everybody who's part of this resistance is a, you know, is a member of the Communist Party, which wasn't quite true, though it was communist-led. Uh, okay, um, what do you call the various sides? This, too, is very political. Language is political. You call... Uh, the Republic of Vietnam or South Vietnam, the Republic of Vietnam, or do you call it a puppet government, as uh, the communists did? Mentioned Viet Cong, People's Liberation, North Vietnamese Army, they have their own terms. Do you see this as a struggle between democracy and communism, or do you see it as counter-revolutionary capitalism versus revolutionary nationalism? These terms are very important. I'm going quickly because I really want to spend most of the time talking about the, how people on various sides described and defined w the war itself, what they were fighting for. Um, but th this, the, the strategies on all sides really give you a clue to that the topic I'm getting to. That is, wh wh how are we going to win this war? Well, Ho, Ho Chi Minh and uh, his military, uh, 
the guy that became the military commander against the French and then against the United States, Vaudouin Jop. I had a chance to interview Vaudouin Jop, uh, very elderly, but uh, uh, he told me a story about first meeting Ho Chi Minh, which happened back in the early 1940s when they formed the Viet Minh to fight the French. And they actually met in a cave up near the Chinese border. And uh, they're talking, and at one point, uh, Jop, the military guy, says, you know, we've been doing all this talking about a, uh, an uprising, a revolution against the French. But we don't, have, we don't even have a damn weapon. How, how are we going to do this? Uh, we, and Ho Chi Minh, according to Jop, calmly responded, if we have the people, we have the weapons. Very sort of enigmatic, but really important. If we have the people, we have the weapons. What does it mean? What I think it means is that if, if we have the support, the political allegiance, the loyalty of the people, their hearts and souls, if they believe in our cause, the, the people themselves, their political allegiance, that's the weapon. That's what's going to win this war. Uh, and I think that he meant as well that if you've got that political allegiance, the weapons will come. Of course, we will need weapons. But you know, we'll get, at first, we'll just get them off the battlefield from the enemy, and then we'll, you know, we'll get some down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And, and eventually, they did get a hell of a lot, of course, from China and the Soviet Union, not the significance of that, not to be underestimated. But it really wasn't from their perspective, and I share this uh, analysis of the war. The war was determined not by technology or firepower or weapons. It was determined by political support. Bottom line, the South Vietnamese government that we were supporting never had the support of its own people sufficient to withstand uh, an, an uprising of its own people, especially when supported by a powerful North. Couldn't do it. Didn't have the, didn't have the support. We did have, if we had chosen to, to utilize it and continue it, the, the power to permanently occupy South Vietnam. I mean, a big power like ours could do that. But military occupation, or even military dominance, is not the same thing as political uh, allegiance, or political support, or political legitimacy, uh, and which, we never, which we never had. Um, uh, an American general, I think, aptly summarizes. I'm sorry, you had a question? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, assuming you're statement about political allegiance is correct, yeah. it is not axiomatic that the other side had the political support. I mean, because they didn't support the government of South Vietnam, it doesn't seem to me to be automatic that they supported the other side. Most people probably just wanted to be left alone. That's possible, that the, most people wanted to be left alone. But I, I would at least argue that uh, the communist-led forces had more political support uh, than uh, the South Vietnamese government, by far. And how else to understand the, uh, Dr. Dai and his staff living under American bombs for 10 years out in the middle of the Central Highlands? I mean, I think propaganda only goes so far. Uh, uh, terror, as it was a common explanation, they fight because they're terrorized. That only goes so, so, so far as an explanation. I do believe and even interviewing Vietnamese today, that they believed that the war against the Americans 
was a quote-unquote sacred cause. And while they have many Vietnamese today, I think, have very bitter feelings about the post-war history and even bitter feelings about how much it took to win. Three million lives. Three million lives. They'd be equivalent of like 15 million Americans if it were proportionate to our population. Uh, while there is disillusionment about post-war life and life under the communist government and many people who have, you know, uh, even who increasingly who had fought with the communists who have left the country since, I'm still, uh, I still do uh, think that most of them uh, believe that uh, their, cause, their cause was just. During the war, um, American civilian and military leaders would often say that in the, in the final analysis, uh, this war will depend upon the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people themselves. I mean, that you could find a million people saying that. But I have to say, that's a lot of lip flapping, really, when you look at the resource allocation. Something like 90 or 95 percent of American resources went into winning the war militarily, uh, not to going out and uh, 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 building uh, the, uh, the infrastructure, helping the people, establishing, you know, uh, providing real security, uh, all those kinds of uh, things. It had to do with a military strategy of going out, uh, patrolling throughout the southern countryside, looking for the enemy, and trying to kill as many of them as possible. It was, uh, some people don't even think this is a real strategy, but the strategy was um, uh, based on um, attrition, this idea that if we uh, hit them again harder and harder and harder long enough, we would um, under, undermine, we'd, we'd wipe out their will uh, and their ability to continue fighting, grinding away at them. A key measurement of success of this strategy of attrition was the body count. Uh, and, um, so there was that. That that's what if you were uh, uh, an ambitious uh, captain wanting to make major and colonel and on up the hierarchy, that's really what you're going to be measured on. Are you producing uh, a body count? And you can see how this would work within a military hierarchy. The word comes down the chain of command. Where's my body count? Where's my body count? Where's my body count? And what is it? All the way down to some line officer out in the boonies, some lieutenant. Uh, who uh, is on the field radio and uh, said, I'm in an ambush. I just walked into an ambush. Uh, and the colonel back at the headquarters saying, great, maintain contact. We finally, you know, we finally found the enemy. Uh, by the way, even though we had overwhelming superiority of firepower and technology, the Joint Chiefs of Staff concluded that in at least three out of four firefights in Vietnam, the enemy controlled the terms of battle, meaning the enemy decided when, where, and how long any particular firefight was going to take place. So you can imagine from the perspective of an American ground soldier how incredibly frustrating as well as scary this war was because they're sent on a mission to go kill Vietnamese and count the bodies, and they're going on the countryside, and they're, they're told to search, you know, find, fix, and finish, but they're not typically finding the enemy. Uh, the enemy finds them when they want to, and typically it was walking into an ambush. And then they're feeling incredibly vulnerable, but they're ordered to maintain contact. They may withdraw a little bit, 
and then they call in. The, re the reason the contact helps is it's a way of finding them. Okay, they found you, but, but at least we know where they are now. So what we can, we can do, what we always wanted to do, which is, to, as Westmoreland was so fond of saying, bring to bear our overwhelming firepower. Because once you've got them, you sort of know where they are generally, then you bring in the big airstrikes, the bombs and the napalm and everything else. Uh, and then you estimate, uh, if you can't count, the body count. And obviously those estimates were often inflated or just made up to please the commanders back uh, at base who were keeping a scorecard. And one unit's body count is here and another unit's there. And even within units, individuals would have, they'd keep tallies of individual confirmed kills, probable kills. And uh, you get the most kills, as one of the people I interviewed in Patriots said, uh, you might, like me, get three days at the beach in Vung Tau. It was an incentivizing of death. And uh, no surprise, therefore, that one of the uh, sort of rules of thumb in the bush, as was sort of said, is, uh, uh, was that if it's uh, dead and Vietnamese, it's Viet Cong. Uh, since there is such an incentive to kill people, you're not going to be too scrupulous about it. You come up on a, a dead body, and it may be a civilian, uh, might even be, you know, uh, a kid might get included in that count. Not always. A lot depends on the, you know, the, who's the officer in charge and so forth. But it breeds a kind of culture. Um, for the South Vietnamese that were uh, American allies, you might. Sit, it, it, what's interesting to me is that while they threw their lot in with the Americans. I think they had a lot of reservations from the very beginning about what that might mean. Let's think of a South Vietnamese person who uh, you know, might say, uh, look, it, I'm a patriot too. You know, those, uh, the communists say they're patriots, and, uh, but I'm a patriot too. I just don't want the communists because right? I don't trust them. I don't think it's really going to be, uh, they're going to deliver on, the, on their promises. Uh, so I'm opposed to them. But I try to talk them into it. And they say, well, yeah, 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 maybe you're right, but uh, at least the communists are Vietnamese, and you're fighting with these uh, Americans. And you're fighting in the name of independence, but the longer you fight and the more they escalate, the more dependent you are becoming on the Americans. Not bringing us independence, they're bringing us dependence. Uh, and um, so that was tough for the people in the South. And the other thing is, while the Americans, their goal, as I said, 21 years, let's build a permanent, non-communist country called South Vietnam. We basically have given up on the North. That's communist. We'll draw the line, as in Korea, that kind of thing. If you're Vietnamese in the South, you, don't you think that's a, real, that's a real compromise. That's a tie. We agreed to fight a war that we could either lose or tie, but not win. Victory for Vietnamese being Vietnamese, they want their country united. They just don't want it under communist leadership. So. The, the American mission is, is, is just sort of a half, a half win at best. Um, these kinds of things that are useful to show uh, to students to give them a sense of this huge American uh, military presence, all these helicopters and Cobra gunships with the shark teeth painted on the front to look more uh, menacing. Uh, picture of the countryside. Highlands, these are gunships that use every fourth round is a so-called tracer bullet, which has chemicals in it that emit a color. So when they're fired rapidly, and these guns could fire 6,000 rounds a minute, 
three of those guns, firing it out. It looks like ropes going down. We could sit and have a gin and tonic on the a downtown at uh, you know a downtown hotel in Saigon and watch the firefights out in the countryside, or at least watch the Buki uh, was the name, uh, one of the nicknames for this gun, uh, gunship, or, or Puff the Magic Dragon was another one. Napalm, which wasn't invented for this war. It had been used most notoriously uh, to firebomb 60-plus Japanese cities be before the atomic weapons were used. Um, by the way, so many Japanese cities had been destroyed by firebombing that the reason Hiroshima and Nagasaki were bombed was that they were only a, one, uh, a, a couple of handful of cities that were so-called virgin targets that had not already been destroyed by incendiary uh, bombs. That's a B-52, uh, enormous 1950s vintage plane and really invented mostly to be part of a nuclear carrying strategic uh, uh, bombers, but used, uh, used in Vietnam mostly, by the way, uh, and exclusively until 1972 over South Vietnam. Uh, North Vietnam had really good surface-to-air missiles. They didn't want to get a lot of these B-52s knocked down. They flew them over South Vietnam. Which is interesting because it, South Vietnam is the, the nation we're, we're, we're pledged to protect. You know, as, as Johnson said, three presidents have pledged to help the people of South Vietnam. But most of the bombing happened over South Vietnam. Uh, four million tons on the south, one million tons uh, on the north. And this is a very indiscriminate form of bombing. This is carpet bombing that will wipe out, you know, uh, three miles in this direction and a half a mile in this direction. And uh, were fired, you know, dropped over so-called Viet Cong uh, strongholds. It's things like this that gave rise to that sort of famous uh, line during the Tet Offensive when an American officer said, it became necessary to destroy the town in order to save it. In that sense, these, you, know, you could say it, um, all this bombing of South Vietnam uh, we had to destroy South Vietnam, not just this town. We had to destroy much of South Vietnam uh, to save it uh, from from uh, from communism. Uh, give another little GI story or, or kind of uh, a joke during the war. Uh, the joke went this way: Here's how you win the war in Vietnam from an American perspective. You take uh, all the friendlies, meaning all the South Vietnamese people who are on our side and you put them on boats or ships out in the South China Sea. And then you absolutely do what Curtis LeMay and a few other people suggested, you uh, and Ronald Reagan, turn the country into a parking lot, pulverize it, bomb it to oblivion. Uh, and then you sink the ships. Get it? I mean, the point is, that you're thinking, okay, they're gonna then you return the friendlies and you give them their, you know, their independence and security. But the, the sort of the, the exaggerated joke that has something truthful to say is that there was so much hostility, even among the people who were part of our side, they couldn't be trusted. And this was sort of the message that went down the, this, this chain of command. Don't trust anyone. You're in Vietnam now. That's why there are wire mesh on the buses that are taking you from the airport to your base. You know, anybody might throw a hand grenade on you. Okay, there's some bomb tonnage. Okay, 
this idea of the different perspectives of how you define uh, the war. This is again way too simple, but um, because we saw, you know, Johnson gave a lot of reasons. We're there to help the people of Vietnam who are building a democracy. Um, the most prevalent official justification for the war it was part of a global war on communism. And that, that is a nice analogy there to the present. We're part of a global war on terrorism, and Iraq is the central front. Johnson might have said, well, this is part of a global war on communism, and Vietnam is the central uh, front. We have to contain it there, because if we don't contain it there, it will spread like some malignant disease. Uh, and we might, therefore, be forced to fight them on the streets of San Francisco, to which Wits at the time often said, well, maybe we could beat them in San Francisco. Um, you know, we know the terrain and all of that, and we would defend the homeland, and that the, the people increasingly did not see communist victory in Vietnam as fundamentally threatening to American national security. But that was the official line. And then when that didn't persuade, the, I think, the key justification, the one that they finally, finally fell back on, especially Nixon, was whatever else this war is about, we're, we're in it now, and if we pull out, our credibility will be destroyed. So it's all about preserving America's reputation. Now, the counter-argument is our persistence in this war is doing much more damage to our international credibility then our staying there uh, is doing to preserve it. Uh, but that, that was the official claim. On the other side, uh, the, um, the two things that were said um, most often uh, was that our war is to liberate the country from foreign intervention and to uh, bring it independent, unite it, unite it, and to bring it national unity. Now, obviously, um, and, and uh, so it raises the whole question, well, what about communism? Was communism not a factor? Uh, yes, it was. And it was part of the propaganda and part of the message. Uh, but they always were very skillful at returning to these ideas of liberation and unity because they had such historic resonance for the Vietnamese because that, after all, had really been the, the quest for thousands of years going back to the wars against China. Uh, this whole China thing is important, I mean, because if you, if you remember that, that Johnson's saying, well, what about China, communist China? They might dominate this whole region. Uh, it's interesting to note that three years after the war in 1978, there was a small little war between China and Vietnam. So, um, you know, uh, communists are not part of this whole uh, monolithic mass. They have their divisions. In the case of Vietnam and China, these were deep historical tensions. Now, um, for American soldiers, again, these are generalizations because I would say American soldiers and then veterans are as widespread in their political viewpoints as most Americans, maybe even wider. But I've interviewed a lot of very different veterans from different political points of view. And even those who would say, we could have won the war, we should have won the war, and it, and the, and it we were right to be there, when you ask them concretely about the war as it was fought and as they experienced it, they really um, they, 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 they focus on uh, the fact that there did not seem to be a meaningful um, mission, uh, one that, that, that could really galvanize their highest ideals and motivations. Because, it goes back to what I was saying about the idea of the body count, we're just going out there uh, to kill people. And as that 
war on people, increasingly the key motivation of American soldiers was simply to survive or to help their buddies survive. And people did unbelievably brave things to help each other survive, like falling, even like falling on hand grenades, sacrificing themselves for others. They, they, never, um, they never felt um, the strong sense of mission that the other side uh, did. Uh, and this is true even at the highest levels of the officer uh, corps. I interviewed a, nu a number of uh, people uh, like Bernard Trainer, and you can see here a nice uh, chronology here. Because at the beginning, his first, his first uh, quotation comes from the way he felt in 1965 when he went there on his first tour. And then he'd really very much believed that this was part of a crusade against godless communism and for democracy and freedom. But by the time he'd come back for his uh, second tour, uh, he had uh, come to believe that this, this uh, so-called democracy that we're supporting really was corrupt and dictatorial, and that the communist threat that he was so fervent about really looked a little bit different, that it wasn't quite so monolithic as it had once seemed. And, by, and in addition to that, the Vietnamese people um, also had this anti-colonial fervor and nationalism that was part of what motivated them. Another general said, uh, you know, we used to say their guys just care more. The enemy used to care more. Whatever motivates them, whatever they feed them, or whatever they believe in, whether it's getting rid of Europeans or all this communist pap, whatever it is, they believe it. They were totally unselfish. There is an account early on in Patriots of a woman who was the only uh, woman in her uh, guerrilla unit and she, near, uh, in around Kuchi, which was uh, in this, just, just northwest of Saigon. And that's a place where you can visit today and take a tour of the underground uh, tunnels, uh, which they have widened uh, to help accommodate uh, uh, people <laughs> like me. <laughs> who still found it unbearably uh, claustrophobic uh, and uh, uh, you know, panic attacky sort of situation. <laughs> um, but uh, they started building these underground tunnels in the war against the French and greatly expanded them in the American War so that some of them went three levels, some of them were huge storage areas, they had underground hospitals, all sorts of things. And people went in and out of them. And this woman, Gung, um, describes life in and out of the tunnels. She actually got buried in one of them for a week. Um, they, um, they offered surprisingly good protection to American bombs, but not always. And she had to dig her way out uh, once. But um, her account, uh, and I, I do hope you'll read it, does give you, I think, a good sense of some of the motivations, which combine sort of very human personal motivations as well as larger kind of ideological or political motivations. The personal are very important because a lot of these people will say, uh, I fought for a very simple reason. People are bombing me. I'm fighting back. Self-defense. This is our land. You came to our land. Uh, you killed my father. You killed my sister. Uh, I might not want to, uh, actually didn't want to get involved in this war. I think a lot of people, you know, imagine what it would be like to try to be neutral there. And then, uh, there's a bombing strike that uh, kills one of your family members. That may do more than any, no matter how effective a, a political officer of some communist cadre was in coming into your village and talking about uh, how much better Vietnam will be 
uh, under communist leadership, and they were very effective. Uh, nothing was more effective than uh, a bomb that kills a relative. So um, her account gives you a sense of that. Also gives you a sense of the of how uh, they learned to fight against the Americans. They were terrified at first. They were so big. They had so many weapons. But uh, we knew the land, and we learned how to fight against them. And she, uh, she uh, became quite effective and was actually given an award, uh, which probably doesn't translate very well, but something like the Valiant Destroyer of American uh, GIs. Uh, this guy's interesting. He was a South Vietnamese lieutenant. Uh, that is, he sort of allied with the United States, fighting against the communists. And uh, he, uh, one day on an operation, came across a bag of letters that had worked their way down from the north, which is amazing, because it takes about three months at best to walk from North Vietnam into the South. Uh, but they did have a sort of a, a rudimentary mail service. And so some of these units, North Vietnamese troops, were getting mail from their, um, their families. And he found this bag, and you know, he, instead of just taking it directly to the intelligence guys, he says, I'm going to read some of these. So he pulls them out, and he's kind of flabbergasted because they revealed such passion and fervor for the cause. And they had such a deep commitment to the war and so much hatred for us, the enemy. They said things like, don't worry about us, you know, back in the home front. Yes, we've got rationing. Yes, it's tough. But you fight the cause. Uh, we'll survive. Do your best. We, meaning the South Vietnamese forces, we never had such strong feelings about the war. I think that's why they were able uh, to prevail. Jim Sular's uh, account gives you a really good sense, I think, of the way a lot of American soldiers uh, felt. Uh, early on, you know, when he got into the military, he uh, very patriotic, still believes himself to be a real patriot, uh, and in fact, uh, early on, expressed great love for the war. He was 19 years old. He was put in charge of a very expensive piece of equipment, a, a Chinook helicopter, huge helicopter, double rotors, uh, and it didn't fly unless he said it checked out okay. He was the, the crew chief. And... Uh, because that, that was fun. And not only that, when this thing flies and you get to take over to the, 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 the door gunner and fire that machine gun, thrilling. Loved it. 19 years old. But even while he was there, he had some awful feelings about what the war was doing and began to think about the Vietnamese as people. One of his missions uh, that he had to do a number of times was to go out in the countryside and remove ordinary villagers and take them and put them into refugee camps. Because this was part of a strategy to deprive the enemy of the people and the support of the people. It's that old Maoist uh, phrase, uh, based on this whole Maoist phrase that gorillas are like fish swimming in the ocean, and the people are the ocean. If you don't have the people, the, the fish can't survive. There's no real separation between the gorillas and the people. They work together. So the American military says, okay, that's pretty good. We can, we can let's see, is this, we, if the problem is the support they're getting from the people, let's drain the swamp, is one, <laughs> one idea, or let's remove the people from the countryside, and then, and then we'll declare a, a free fire zone. We'll shoot everything that moves, obliterate it, and have no qualms. We'll, we'll tell the people, if you move back there, you're you know, at your own risk. But come in there with these big helicopters and remove the people. And Jim Sular was part of that. He said, these people were terrified. Many of them had never been away from their home. Many of them, most, probably, most if not all, had never been 
on an aircraft. Uh, they were traumatized. Uh, one guy freaked out so badly that a guy, in the, one of his crew, Jim Souter's crew, didn't know what else to do but grab him and throw him out of the helicopter uh, to certain death. Uh, Jim said, you know, we didn't realize that we were removing these people from their ancestral homeland where all their relatives were buried. And uh, how, you know, th in, one, in one operation we had totally, totally antagonized them. And again, they were terrified. They were defecating and, and urinating in their clothes. They were so terrified. They had to take hoses and spray down the helicopter when they got it back to base. So this, this, those kinds of experiences, and there were others, um, really uh, made him rethink uh, his mission uh, and, uh, and doubt it and question it in some fundamental ways. So again, I'm just going to wrap it up here and finish with that point I was really trying to emphasize at the beginning. Uh, I think the war was determined not because of uh, weapons, but because of um, politics and because of the will of the people. Again, it is possible for a very powerful country to move into another place and occupy it and control it. I mean, that is, is it not, the history of colonialism for hundreds and hundreds of years? strong foreign power moving in and dominating it with force and money. That doesn't mean they have the support of the people. They might have the support of some people. Uh, you know, you go in and you create a little elite and you send them to colleges in, uh, the, uh, in Europe uh, or, or, or you, you give them contracts. You're going to get some support, but are you going to get the broad support? Uh, no. Um, so, that's all too brief, but let's, <laughs> uh, let's have some discussion. Thank you.